in typical provocative car dealership guy nature, I want to say this very bluntly. Do car dealers hate you? Copilot or me personally? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can focus on Copilot. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Pat Ryan is founder and CEO of Copilot, an AI-powered car buying app that's helping consumers navigate their car purchase. Prior to Copilot, Pat co-founded and sold two auto tech startups to ACV auctions. In this conversation, we spoke about the dynamics of family entrepreneurship, building and exiting two startups to the same company, simplifying car search for consumers, innovating with AI, and how to leverage Copilot to find a great car deal. But before we get into the show, please take two seconds to subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite listening platform. It's completely free and will help ensure that you never miss an episode. All right, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Pat Ryan. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, we got Pat Ryan on the pod. Pat, welcome. Great to hear. I, I got to ask you, the, the first thing I noticed when I was, uh, I, I did some research on you and your background, Chicago. I mean, what, what do they put in the water in Chicago? What's the deal with everyone in automotive, all these powerhouses coming from Chicago? Give us your background and your story. Well, I, uh, I was working in more traditional industry uh, in the early 2000s. And, you know, we were working a lot with data and analytics and we saw what an impact that had. I think one of the stories we used to tell was that um, the folks at Walmart were so good with data and analytics that on a Memorial Day weekend, based on how hot it was, they could tell you how much purple Gatorade they needed to stock or of every flavor of Gatorade. You know, if you went to a 7-Eleven back then, it was all the junky flavors you didn't like were the only ones left. But they had every single flavor and color perfectly predicted based on the weather and everything that was happening. And we were trying to bring that to business. And one of the things that we looked at was, so we said, you know, the largest retail vertical is automotive, but no one's ever really done what Sam Walton did. And one of the things that we always loved was, you know, people think of Sam Walton and Walmart, obviously, as big box retail and all this. But he's actually, when he was originally inducted into the Business Hall of Fame, it was for the use of data analytics and logistics. And so we always thought that was really interesting, that ability to predict. All the Walmart stores used to have satellite dishes, so they could have this real-time data transfer. And so our thought was, is how do you bring that to other industries? And I've been around the auto business a little bit, but I wasn't an insider. And we started a company called First Look, and the idea was to bring data-driven analytics, kind of what Walmart did, but for the auto industry. And uh, when we started it, I actually went to go try to sell CarMax. So I went and saw Austin Liggett. And it was a weird early SaaS product. And I said to Austin, I showed him everything. And it was a great conversation. He's going on and on. He's asking all these great questions. He's almost finishing my sentences. And I'm like, this could be the greatest first major customer ever. Because he completely gets it. And I said at the end, I'm, I'm a t- I had no sales training. So I, I ended with a terrible closing question, which is, what do you think? <laughs> and he looks at me. And he says, I hate it. And I said, what do you mean you hate it? We've been talking for two hours. This has been great. You totally get this. He said, Pat, Circuit City City spent 10 years and $25 million building this for us. And you're going to sell it to my competitors for $1,000 a month. That's not good for me. And so that was kind of my induction to the business. But then I never, it took me years to meet somebody else like, 
Austin Ligon. It took me years to find because the industry, what Austin understood wasn't as ready. And so being my first experience in the industry was trying to introduce something at a time when people, it's the you know, mid 2000s, when people were still trying to think of everything as gut. You know, I know what a car is. I know what yeah. a car is worth. I know what a car should be priced at. And so we were ahead of the curve, which sounds like a self-congratulatory thing, but it's actually purgatory, if not hell, because you're trying to sell something that people aren't ready to adopt yet. And so you've got to search for those early adopters. And we eventually got there, but it was, it was really hard because nobody wanted to be Walmart of the car business back then. Of course, it's evolved a lot since then, but that was a, that was my introduction to the car business was trying to sell something that people it was like it was it worked they made a lot more money but it was like tell them to you know eat right and exercise you know it's not popular to say no ice cream no pizza you know like i was selling kale <laughs> <laughs> and and what was that initial product for you right so you mentioned you focused on automotive was a huge vertical was it just data and analytics and assisting yeah so it was called first look and it was it was basically the original idea mm-hmm. was that we brought in the same kind of inventory management carmax did or Walmart did. Uh, it was stocking, it was appraising, and it was pricing. And then it also helped you figure out, you know, what to, what to sell. And the original idea, so the original launch of the business was actually the morning, it was in Washington, D.C., because we were going to, our early monetization model wasn't fast. Our early monetization model was going to be um, getting dealers to trade cars with each other. Mm. Um it was going to be like a dealer roundtable auction where we would have all the data. We would know what they needed to stock, what they needed to sell. We would say, okay, car dealership guy needs to pick up three Accords and, you know, this guy needs two BMWs and we'll put you guys together and, you know, facilitate that. So we did it actually in a conference center in suburban Washington, D.C. And it was scheduled to start at 10 a.m. on September the 11th, 2001. Well, by the time 10 o'clock came, they'd shut down DC. They were shutting down the, we all got in a van and drove back to Chicago all over, you know, basically mm-hmm. straight. And, uh, it was very tough. And then eventually we, we had dropped that revenue model and we, that's when I met with Austin. And eventually we got Hendrick as our first big client. Wow. But it, uh, it was a very hard thing to sell data driven insights to dealers at that moment in time because that wasn't the culture of the business. I got to tell you, one thing I noticed about you as I was preparing for this episode is it seems like you keep a very low profile. And, and look, as, as an outsider, you have a very impressive track record and background. You've exited two companies to the same company, which we'll get into in a, in a bit. Uh, you sat on the board of Penske, I believe, you know, up until recently. You know, you've, yeah. you've been around in some really great rooms, and I'm sure you've just been exposed to a lot in the business. Tell us a bit about, you know, getting to that position. And also, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to hear about these two acquisitions to ACV auctions. So let's start sure. there. Yeah. So the, the, the first thing is, is so interestingly, um, my dad is an entrepreneur. So I come from an entrepreneurial family. He actually, his first business was called Pat Ryan Associates, eventually Ryan Insurance. And he was credited with creating what is sort of, he's in the automotive insurance hall of fame. He's in the automotive hall of fame for inventing the F&I office. I, I, and I was going to say, I think it's an understatement to call him an entrepreneur. As, as far as I read, the founder of Aon, is that right? Founder of Aon. 
That's unbelievable. And now he's got a new at seventy three. He found a new public company, which he t- a new company that's not public. He took public last year called Ryan Specialty. We went to the New York Stock Exchange for the uh, IPO. I said the chairman of the Stock Exchange was there, and I said, "My dad's eighty six right now." And I said, "Do you get many eighty four year olds?" He said, "Pat, we don't get many sixty four year olds, let alone eighty four year olds, let alone someone who's done it two three times like this." So. He knew the auto business, but I was too young. By the time he really started get moving into what became Aon, I was no longer, you know, that was really when I was old enough to really understand what's going on. So I didn't know the automotive side of the business much. But in 1968, he gave a talk at a 20 group in Montreal, Canada, and it was Pat Ryan Associates, and he had a handful of associates. And uh, it was early in the business, and this guy walks up from Philly area. And he says, hi, I'm the general manager and part owner of a Chevy store in Philly. I love what you said. Can we go out, like go have a drink or, 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 you know, get some meat? I'd love to talk to you more about it. And that guy was Roger Penske. And so my dad and Roger are these two guys who've gone on to create these, you know, large public companies, the global companies, but they knew each other when they were nobody and they invested in each other. And so it was a great, uh, so it's a kind of a great story that these guys grew up together and they're still doing it. They're three months apart in age. And so um, in the 90s, when I was uh, starting to work, I got out of grad school and I was, I was starting to work. I had done some work before on automotive supply. Um, we had been an investor. My dad wasn't able to go to board meetings because Aon was global. It's 150 countries. So he was traveling all the time. So Roger invited me to join the board. Uh, to represent us. And, uh, you know, the privilege of getting to sit around a table and learn from a guy like Roger Penske was, has been unbelievable. I spent 25 years doing it. I have the greatest respect for him, for his organization. And I just, you know, I tried to be a sponge because, I mean, there, there are only so many iconic people in any industry. There are probably a handful in any industry like a Roger Penske. You know, maybe he's Elon Musk is of our generation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that's it. And so that was just, it was incredible. And you, you know, you learn about how does the guy build what's there. And you also learn they don't get everything right, yet they go on to incredible success. And so you learn from both what they get right and what they learn from. And it, you know, it was fantastic. Happy to talk more about it, but it was incredible. It sounds like an incredible story. And I want to break the normal flow of my podcast for one second, because, you know, typically I'll start with background, go into more B2B and with consumer, right? But I want to ask you a more personal question. What's it like to grow up in a household like that with a father that is so incredibly successful and you yourself obviously have been just tremendously successful? What has that been like? You know, what, what was it like to be raised in that type of household? You know, it's funny because it's different than people expect because wealth is a form of celebrity. So people see my dad on the Forbes list or these kind of things and everybody focuses on, you know, is it like some TV show? And it's not really because he's an entrepreneur. So when I was, when I was young, you know, he wasn't what he is today. And so you're sort of there as a, along for the journey. And so you have this, you have this, it was different each decade of my life. You know, when I was in high school and college, nobody ever heard of my dad, you know, in the general public. But were the core values the same at all times? Exactly. That's, that's the thing is it's, it's really, I think there are three big things. One is, you know, as a father, he's been a great father and a great mentor. 
But as a businessman, he also is always, you know, we, I grew up around the table talking about what his strategy was, what he was doing, why he was doing it. And we still do that today. And one of the things that's really interesting for my dad is, is that, you know, I, I went to grad school, but I've learned a thousand X from him as he goes through these things, you know, kind of getting to ride shotgun and, and see what he's doing and learn from what he's doing. And it's been, you know, it's been an incredible journey. But it's also the kind of journey where, you know, he really is happy to share. And obviously, I'd never be able to buy stock because I always have some information that, you know, would, would, wouldn't be appropriate. So for me, it's if you look at my dad and, and growing up there, one, seeing his values have always been the same no matter how much he had, no matter how well known he was, you know, the financial, none of that really mattered. He was always a family guy first. Family mattered first and foremost. He was always very committed. You know, my dad has a view, which is think no impure thoughts and you won't get yourself in trouble. Like, don't even entertain the idea and don't be around people who would entertain the idea of, uh, of being in any way doing things across lines and boundaries that you'd never be comfortable with. So I've, I've seen him do that. And I've seen others who cut corners who were, you know, maybe less willing to do so. And you really see people talk about playing the long game, but you have to be willing to, to ride the ups and the downs. And there are times where things aren't going well and you could try to spin it, but his view was always be candid, take your lumps, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and come back. And that's the nature of being a public company CEO for decades. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs. And, you know, they, they lost almost 200 people in 9-11. They were the top floor of World Trade Center 2. Wow. He was supposed to be there that morning. And he was, he was actually over the Atlantic. And, you know, you look at how he handled that and, you know, people first. They they did more for their people than almost anybody. College scholarships, take care of the families, lifetime health insurance for anybody who died. And then they were really committed to that. And then Wall Street punished them for having high expenses. And you say, okay, wow. well, this is right by our people. We got to do right by our people. You know, we want to do right by our shareholders, but our shareholders get get what they get get the benefits they get because of our people. And we always got to stand by our people first and foremost. So it's been a journey like that of a, a hundred of those things, maybe not always yeah. big and profound, but a hundred. Absolutely. Things. And very commendable. I, I want to go back to, we, you mentioned earlier, just, you know, riding the ups and downs. And I found it incredible that you managed to have, you know, you launched an incubator, which I'd love to hear more about, you know, the startup studios really, you know, found and built companies but you sold two companies to ACV auctions. Can you tell us about mm -hmm. that, that journey getting to that point? Yeah, you know, I think there's always a thought that, um, I think there's always a thought that as you get to a certain scale and size, like how far can you take this? And, you know, lots of people. And what I learned is that we had very good products. So when our products at Hendrick and Lithia, which were our two biggest customers, would go head to head, get challenged by competitors, I was always very proud of the fact that um, that our dealerships outperformed the ones using our competitor software. Because you feel ultimately you want the people who are loyal to you, your customers who are loyal to you, to be successful. And to be more successful, you want them to, to be really, you know, feel the uh, benefit of the loyalty. And I really felt good about that. I really liked our first look business and we had our max business, which is sort of digital retailing, digital marketing. And it was really focused on that consumer dealer experience. So like we had a BMW and GM um, endorsements and, and we would do a sales tool that salespeople could use to be more consumer friendly. 
And a lot of times on um, new cars, they might be well-trained, but every used car is different. They didn't know how to tell the difference between the cars. We gave them an app in their pocket that told them everything from across the internet about that car. And so seeing that, you know, we loved our products and we were proud of what our people, what, what our customers achieved. That being said, you know, there's a time the industry has been consolidating significantly. We were with some of the biggest players like Hendrick and, and Lithia. But at the same time, what I also learned is that it was harder for us to grow as a mid-sized company. And so one of the reasons I decided to sell them was you wanted the business to have the right home. And so I sold the businesses to um, ACV because ACV is a very hot growing business. It really is trying to expand its set of offerings. And so for our Which business team, was this? Which business are you referring to? I sold both of them. I sold to it. Um, I sold both First Look and Max to them. And, and, and what was the difference from First Look to Max Digital? We sold them around the same time. So mm-hmm. we sold them around the same time. But in terms of the actual product, the product itself, what was oh, the difference? So First Look was the inventory management and Max Digital was the digital retailing, like, you know, the... the, the uh, everything in your pocket for a salesperson to be an expert. We also made their ads better on places like cars.com and auto trader and that sort of thing. So it was all about building consumer centric ads and sales processes. And now these companies that you founded, are you pulling off a Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk as co-CEO uh, or are you, are you just the chairman? Like how, how does the structure of this actually so, work? How do you run two companies? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I started the first one and I had a deal to sell it and it was too restrictive. It was actually, I had a deal back then to sell it to dealer track in 2010 and I didn't, but I really wanted to go do something, start something else, start something new. So I, I brought in a CEO to run it. And then in 2011, we started max because we saw sales enablement is really the category. And we saw that salespeople, you know, often didn't have do the research they needed to do to be knowledgeable on every car. We would have people who worked for us. A lot of our people used to be CarMax buyers where the people went out and worked with dealers. And they'd go to buy a car to dealership and someone would tell them, oh, this is X trim. And the guy, our guy would say, I know it's not X trim. Like the guy would be making up stuff. You'd see salespeople making stuff up all the time. And we thought, they're only making it up because they don't know. They're not trying to deceive the customer. They just, it's a lot of homework to have 100 cars in a lot. I know the story of every car, particularly when it's outside of your franchise. You know, if it's not your franchise, how well do you know the trims and the packages of other brands? And so that's where we got into this idea of sales enablement. So in 2011, I started Max. It grew really fast, much faster than first look. Um, and then what happened to me is, is I, uh, I got it to a certain scale. I was on the board, but I had also been involved in founding a venture firm called Chicago Ventures and an incubator in Chicago called 1871. And I really felt like helping other entrepreneurs was something that I wanted to do. So I, I had took some of the people who worked for us and they ran the businesses. Did a good job with it. But for me, I really liked the idea of, you know, I'd spent 10, 15 years at this point learning the startup world. And so helping our ecosystem in Chicago, helping entrepreneurs both through funding, being on boards, but also these incubators, um, was something I spent a lot of time on, let's call it between 2013 and 2018. And I really loved doing that. Uh, and so that became kind of a, a third, if you will, uh, founding for me. And 
and it was probably the right thing at the right time. I was probably burned out. I mean, being on the road, calling on, you know, selling is a, it takes a lot out of you. And so we had people with fresh energy. It's like in football, they put a fresh, mm -hmm. fresh lineman in. They needed somebody fresh in the game. And so that was when I kind of stepped out of those businesses. We sold them during the pandemic very successfully, but, um, but we didn't, um, well, we ended up, uh, I really, that, that period of helping other entrepreneurs was a really fun and important one for me because, you know, you learned a lot the hard way. You have a lot of scar tissue to show and feel like, God, I hope somebody else can learn this without having to go through everything I did mm -hmm. to learn the hard way. A hundred percent. And, and so throughout this process, you know, you start another company, Copilot. Uh -huh. And I found it fascinating that, you know, you've, you've been so committed to the automotive vertical, but that specifically that throughout everything you had going on, you're clearly the CEO of this company. So I want to mm -hmm. dig into that. What is Copilot? What are you working on now? And why did you decide to go be CEO of another company as opposed to, you know, appoint a management team or incubate it through your, through your firm? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So a couple of things. First of all, I learned after being a BC flat, I really like the creative process, being an entrepreneur, leading a team, trying to help people solve problems. So that was one piece. I knew I wanted to go back and operate again and, and found something, number one. Number two, when I founded Max, I really had the naive point of view, and you'll appreciate this given your experiences, that this would be, Max would be how we'd make the, the car dealership sales process consumer friendly. And we had some great customers who did great things. But... At Max, the number one, one of my great disappointments was that our number one requested feature for our sales tool, it's like a consumer walks into this dealership, it's a big touch screen there that they can use our tool to like self shop themselves, right? The number one request we had from salespeople was, can you create a button where we can change the price? So if somebody hasn't been online and I know that, I can raise the prices on all the cars. And I thought, well, that's terrible. If somebody didn't go online and they came here because they trusted you. And if you're going to raise the price, what it made me realize is that given the nature of the sales process and given the nature of commission-based sales, it was going to be hard to get the industry to go really consumer-friendly as a vendor because ultimately you're, you're doing what you know, you're, you know, you got to meet your needs, what your customers ask for. So I actually took the technology, all the data stuff we had created at Max, and I spun it out and created Copilot. And the idea came from something very simple. You you do this, I, I think, for people on Twitter. You do this probably for your friends, which is we had all this data. We basically had built over just 10, 15 years the best data platform for analytics, pricing, and cars. We have, we have the original window stickers on 150 million of the 275 million cars out there, for example. And so we got out there and what I, what would happen is our friends would call and say, Hey, I heard you have all this data. Can you help me? So our people would get on the phone. They help their friend find the right car. They tell them why it's priced right. They do everything. They help figure out how to negotiate the best deal. They do all this. And their friend would just say, thank you. That was fantastic. And they'd say, you know, you guys should really do that. And we're like, well, we can't do that because our dealer customers wouldn't like it if, you know, we were in the business of using that data to negotiate with them. And so, but that was the original co-piloting. It was people using all our data to help friends do it. And so we had the idea of like, if you want to make the car business consumer friendly, the consumer needs an advocate. 
And one of the challenges that the listing sites have, and I, I like all the people who run them, but they're paid by dealers. And so they're limited in how far they can go without getting pushback. And of course, TrueCar is the ultimate example of that, which is as they started pushing too far, the dealers pushed back on them. And, you know, it's, I don't think it's right to, um, to, to take money from people and then work against them. So we don't take, we, we started this business saying we won't take money from dealers. Listen, dealers get free leads from us. They try to pay us all the time. The vision of Copilot was how do you get your own expert who knows everything about the car business, will do all the heavy lifting, all the research, search every dealer, analyze every car, rank everything for you. So you're getting the most car for your money every time and you can buy with confidence. And you were talking to the, um, and it's the software guy from Israel a couple of weeks ago. And you were talking about that is Copilot. What you guys were describing were that is, that is exactly why we created Copilot. I love what you were saying. Our name turns out to be a really prophetic one, given where we're going with generative AI. But that is exactly it. The idea is everybody should have a co-pilot. And, you know, some of our dealer friends are like, well, you know, but then you're teaching people how to, you know, be really great at this. And, you know, does that cut my profits? I said, no, if you're a dealer who prices a car well, who has a great car, who's trying to do the right thing, we have made that customer comfortable trusting that. So now all of a sudden that customer doesn't come in wary because they know you're different because we've analyzed the market and said, you know what, go to car dealership guy because that accord he has is great quality, one owner, no accidents. It has, it's really well priced. It's got great equipment. It's low mileage. It has all these other features. And so the whole vision is that by helping consumers, we actually help the industry get more consumer centric because it rewards the people doing the right things. And that eventually will mean those people are more successful and either the other people will change or go away. So I think the magic question that everyone's wondering, how do you make money? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> so the short answer is, is um, the secret to our cost side of our business, which is important to understand is, is we have, I took all my best engineers. So I've got a 25 person team that does this, but it's like, they're the best at automotive data. And there, we have a number of people who are really great at AI. So part of it is, is it doesn't, every customer we get, it doesn't cost us a dime more to serve a million people than a thousand people, or maybe it costs us a dime more, but very little. So part of it is I've got a fixed cost business so that I don't have an increase in cost as, as we increase the number of people, which makes it easier to make money because if my if it was marginal cost, it would run me out of business. The answer is, is we make money. So 97% of our customers go to our site. We have almost 2 million people on similar web would tell you almost 2 million people going to our site every month. That's doubled since December. Um, so we're acquiring them for free. And 97% of our customers will go to a dealer without the dealer ever knowing we were involved. 3% will go into our app and use it to help them across the way, but they stay with us. And so we might help them refinance their loan when interest rates go down. We're not in that market anymore, but we were before. We certainly, we primarily make money off insurance. So um, we have partnerships with different folks, including Allstate, um, helping people save money on their insurance. And over time, you know, we'll help them with more and more. But it's really that group that becomes our core, almost like an affinity group. So our network becomes this group of people who then say, that was such a great experience. I want to stay with you. Help me figure out everything else. 
And that's how we make money is by saving them money because they know we're like Costco, which is we're only going to make a little bit of money on them. You know, an insurance person will make $500, $1,000 on something. We'll make $100, but we're fine with that because we're in the long-term relationship with that consumer. And if we can pass along most of the savings to them, they'll be loyal to us and that'll be a great long-term partnership. Two million visitors a month. Incredible number. How, how are these uh, visitors finding you? Uh, primarily through SEO today and then word of mouth. Um, our customers really love us. We have a 4.8 rating in the app store. And you know, our customers really, they love us. I think they realize that we're on their side and there's something about that. Just like I think a lot of things you've done out there tweeting. When you are transparent with people in a really constructive way, they trust you because you've earned their trust. And once you've earned people's trust, there's this sense of like they can relax and they can start to solve the problem. Where a lot of people, I think, in buying a car have had a negative experience and so they're they're locked up. They're 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 nervous. They're just they're trying to not be taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And having somebody you trust help you navigate the way, I think is really important. So word of mouth is half our traffic. Wow. Um and then SEOs become really big because we are searching every dealer. We are analyzing for our customers. We are analyzing every car. And then we're ranking all of them. And we can rank them because we're, the dealer's not paying us. So the dealers who get high ranks love us. And the dealers are low ranked. No one ever sees their cars. So they don't actually get hurt. But if we were pay, getting paid by dealers, we could never rank them because, you know, they would be worried about, I'm paying you $1,000 a month. Why aren't you ranking me higher? And consumers like it because the listing sites have to show sponsored cars more prominently. We only show what's better for you. Do you think you're leaving dollars on the table, especially from the, the dealers that are high ranking? Do you think you could monetize that cohort of dealers? I mean, and, and you're smiling. Looks like something you've it's thought about. Great, possibly. It's, well, it's a great question. My board asks it a lot, of course. My investors <laughs> ask that question a lot. So you sound like one of my investors for sure. Um, you know, I'd only want to, I, I would only want to do it in a way if it didn't and take away from the independence that our customers trust. Our members trust us and that's the most valuable asset we have. And I've been hesitant to do it. There's no question that we're under optimizing the monetization of what we have under monetizing what we have. But, you know, it's easy. It takes a lot of time to build trust and you can burn it in a split second. So, I respect the fact that they trust us and I really want to be respectful and, and, and protective of that. Yeah, look, I think I, I know the feeling, right? Because I am, I think what I take pride in is that I consistently try to share an unbiased perspective. And in certain yeah, cases, you do a great job of it. and it's hard, you know, frankly, like in certain cases, I may piss off consumers. In certain cases, I may piss off some dealers, but it, you know, you're constantly tippy-toeing on that fine line. Uh, because you want to, like you said, you want to earn that trust of the, the marketplace. And so it's uh, it's not an easy task. And uh, I'm glad your board members are bringing up that question. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you another question, though. But h- how did you initially wedge into the market, right? So you have this idea. I just, I, knowing the car, the, the listing, the car listing marketplace is very competitive. And so how did you, how did you manage to wedge into this market? And how do you retain your, your spot in just what's such a saturated market, or at least it feels like? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first answer is it's hard. I mean, they're just in, in consumer in general. I mean, think in the last decade, how many consumer businesses and consumer internet businesses have broken out? Not a lot. Um, 
I think there are two ways that we've done it. Uh, the first one is, is we early on, we were very successful on Facebook, actually, in getting that chicken egg problem solved with early users. And then I think the fact that we can position as independent and we're not actually a listing site. We're a search engine. We have a search engine. So what we do different than a listing site is nobody sends us their inventory. We have a search engine. It's an automotive search engine. And we go find cars. And here's the thing is it's a win-win for dealers on two levels. One, if we find your car and it does well, you're going to get a free lead that's highly motivated. And if you don't do well, well, it, it, it's like you never saw us anyway. So there's no real downside to the dealer for us being a search engine. So we're really additive to them. Even though we're empowering consumers, not every dealer likes that. The good dealers do because they're like, hey, I worked hard to price this fairly, but you're giving me third-party validation. So the good dealers, the consumer-centric dealers trust that. The other benefit we do that um, I would tell you that in the search engine part, part of it is, is by being transparent with consumers, um, it's allowed us to counter position. You know, there's never a sponsored car. And people recognize that. And we say, how long the car's been online? And they say, oh, the dealer can't like the fact you told us it's been on 123 days, but it builds that trust. But the other thing we do for dealers that nobody else does in pricing is we actually give dealers, we actually give the car full credit for what it has. So for example, if you take a BMW, there's a lot of packages in BMWs that aren't factored into the trim. If it's a fully loaded BMW versus one of the same trim that's not, that's cold weather package, that's heated, you know, heated seats, it has a whole bunch of other really great pieces. We actually will reflect that in the market price where a lot of those pricing tools out there don't. And so dealers, a loaded car will get a fuller fair price from us than it will from other third parties because it's value to the consumer. I mean, if I can get $10,000 worth of packages for $5,000, that's a great buy. So I think it's that trust. I think it's the fact that um, we're so different than everybody else and that we don't take money and that we're independent has helped the word of mouth. And I think the generative AI, like I picked the name Copilot. We picked the name Copilot for a reason. Our vision was always what I've heard you describe, which is the, the consumer needs Be that, that one-stop shop. So we just had a hackathon here. All our engineers came into town. We had a hackathon. And we have some really exciting generative AI things. We have a plugin we've submitted to the plugin store right now. We have a uh, uh, we've been working generative AI and chat GPT into our product. Because if you take our differentiated data and the independence, we're not afraid of what the results are because the chips will fall where they may. But if you have customers who might look bad as, as dealers who are paying you, you have to be very, very careful. And so there's a liberation to being on the consumer side of the table only, which is we can just do the right thing, focus on that, and we'll do right by the consumer. And the dealers who are doing the right thing will be rewarded. And the other ones will never hear of us. They won't even know we exist. You know, on that note, I just think that uh, the next generation of car shopping is going to be wild. I mean, I, I look at the Apple Vision announcement, right, the, the headset. And I think about shopping for a car, right? The first, call it dealer, or the first, the first company that creates that app for dealers to, you know, be on the Apple Vision Pro and truly see 
you know, when, like when Carvana came out with the with the 360 view, it was like, okay, wow, this is new. And then it got commoditized and every dealer pretty much has that now. And I just imagine this world where, like I said, you go on this website, you know, you say just what you want and maybe you don't know everything you want. Maybe you know exactly what you want. It doesn't matter, but you state a prompt and boom, it pulls up on this just, you know, augmented reality. You see the car, you spin it with your finger and you see it in such fine detail that it truly takes the car shopping experience to the next level. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a crazy world. I think that's going to happen. It's just a matter totally. of time. I think that's right. The other thing that's going to happen that we've been working on for quite a while, we call it diagonal search, which is, okay, show me, you know, horizontal search is like, show me all the Hondas or show me all the pickups. And, you know, sorry, for vertical searches, you know, you go down, like, show me all the, in this class. And then you can go kind of across. But, but we call diagonal searches like, I need an SUV with seven seats with, you know, captain's chairs because I got a car seat in the way back that I got I got my kids out of the back row in. I need to have cargo space. I need to have um, a good fuel mileage. And it's really important to me that it has, you know, high five-star crash test ratings. Um, what should I be looking at, right? Because this is a generation of people who aren't car people, you know? And so I'm not a car guy, uh, in the sense that I don't know, I'm not, I don't collect cars. I don't have that sort of thing, but giving consumers a sense, I think it's all going to change. And if you think about it, you know, you asked the question about the listing sites. Well, you know, those are the original classified ads. If you look at the big listing sites, um, cars.com was classified. (laughs) That was classified ventures, Mm -hmm. you know, auto arm, autotrader.com was, you know, from the Auto Trader magazine. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, it's amazing those businesses, what they've done. I mean, what other businesses from the 1990s internet that pivoted out of the newspaper world are still around, let alone still as big and prominent as they are? It's remarkable what they've done, but it also raises the question of, is that going to be their business model in five or 10 years? Like our search engine, people like, they like the fact that no one's paying us for it. They like the fact they can see everything, not just the people who are paying for it. So, so I think there's an interesting innovators dilemma question here that you're, you're right on the money on. Um, and I, I think these guys will make it because they're going to invest in the kind of technology you're talking about, but they have to get that balance right because you got to do it in a way that brings their customers along, lest they fall into the trap that true car fell into where, you know, they, um, they leaned a little hard one way and the dealers, you know, reminded them who their customers were and who paid the bills. Yeah. I, I just had Scott Painter on the pod. So that's, uh, that's, uh, it's already live by the time this pod is live, but that's, uh, it speaks a lot about that. One thing I want to, uh, one point that I want to, you, you mentioned, you said we're, we're not a generation of car people. And I think, you know, I just mentioned Scott Painter and what he's working on and his company. It's very interesting because the, the thesis is all about that the car for you know the next generation is 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 more of a utility much more than call it the prior generation which you know to your point it's like hey i need something to get me from point a to point b has seven seats and is good on gas get me whatever you can and i i just think that unlocks an entire new set you know set of businesses economics because now i can you know operate a subscription a subscription company with one or two models of vehicles and at the end of the day as long as the the economics makes sense you know, I'm going to have plenty of demand because maybe someone doesn't care as much or maybe just cars are a lot more commoditized. And if I have CarPlay, I could care less if it's a Chevy logo or a Tesla logo or a Toyota logo. 
So I do think that's a very big monumental change in consumer behavior, and it's going to have a big impact on lots of businesses. I want to go back for one second, though, on to Copilot. And I want you to explain to me and the audience, like a third grader, who is the perfect consumer for Copilot? And what is that experience really like? Or more, or more importantly, how is that experience different from other listing sites? Yeah, so we wouldn't call ourselves a listing site. We're really in that. Sorry. You know, yeah. No, I, but, I, but I hear you. We, you know, we probably superficially look like one, so I, I totally get it. I think the first thing I'd say is the perfect person for us is someone who's smart. Um, you know, most of our people are buying new or nearly new cars. Um, they look a lot like our employees, frankly. Um, but they're, they're not car people. They don't know a lot about the car business. They don't know a lot about cars. So they, they need help figuring it out. Often they're having families. So I have a first child in a different car than when I was single. I've got two kids and now we're carpooling. Oh, now I've got my 16-year-old learning to drive a car. Like they go through these light transitions. They don't know enough about it to know what they need. But they're and, and smart. They're, they're obviously smart if they're listening to this podcast, right? Exactly. <laughs> and and they're and they want to be empowered. I mean, that's why they listen to the, the podcast, right? They want to be empowered. But they don't want to go have to go spend hours getting to be experts in something they don't know. And so for that person, it's the equivalent of I, I the simplest way I would say it is imagine you have a brother or a cousin, a friend, a neighbor who's, who knows the car business. Imagine your car dealership guy's neighbor. And I come over to you and I'm like, listen, I got to get a new car. My daughter just turned 16. I want something safe. I want something that, you know, I want something that's, you know, not going to be, is going to not be too sporty. I don't want it to be show show offy. I want something that's reliable. Um, Help me think about this. Um, It would be as if you sat down with me and said, Pat, I will do you the favor of let's, let me give you five models to think about. And let me, let me tell you why you might want to think about these. And then, all right, when you, when you search for cars, show me the cars you have, and I'll tell you which ones, ones you should consider and which ones you shouldn't. It'd be like having you, but as a buy. Mm. Well, let's call it 80% of you. Pro- productizing me. Productizing me. Yes. We're pro- it's to productize an expert like you who wants to help people. And that's why we say, you're still the pilot, but here's your co-pilot. They're going to do the heavy lifting. They're going to do the analysis. They're going to bring the expertise, but you're still the decision maker. And that's what this is about. I had a, I have a patent in early generation, uh, early generation expert system that we did at first look years ago. And we've been following this whole AI, generative AI piece. And the whole idea of Copilot was exactly this. We picked that brand name because we want to do that with AI. The data that we have is the key to doing that with AI. And it's how do you have a car dealership guy in your pocket helping you with every step of the process? How is that? How is that very tactical experience different for me, right? If I go right now on uh, any platform listing site, anywhere, a search engine, and you know, I say what type of car I want, I see a list of cars. How is the co-pilot experience specifically different? So um, it's because of the co-pilot. So we, you'll onboard with us. You'll tell me, all right, what are you looking for? All right, tell me what you're looking for. I give a particular model in mind. A lot of people have a hypothesis in mind. I've got a model I'm looking for. I'm looking for a 2020 or 2021 uh, GMC Yukon. Okay, great. What equipment do you want on it? A lot of people don't even know what trim is. So we'll say, oh, well, you really need the monopoly. You really need the SLT. Okay, we help them look at these things. And then what we do is we will take their area and say, how far are you want to look? Most people know more than 100 miles unless it's something rare and then maybe they'll go further. Great. 
Every day we will search within a hundred miles of your house. We will find every dealer. We will search every dealership. Wow. We will find every matching car. We will then find everything from across the internet about every single car. We will analyze every single car. We will give it a buy grade. We will give you a sense of, you know, what makes it great and what makes it risky. We'll give you a pros and cons, kind of like reasons to buy, reasons to pause. And every morning when you wake up, you will have a choice of how you want to do it. We call them hidden gems. What are the mm-hmm. 10 best cars matching what you want in your area? And it's like Tinder. You swipe left, swipe right. You know, you're, uh, you're waiting for the train in the morning. Great. I'm going to look. Okay. I, I've now looked at the 10 best cars in my market because my pilot did all the work for me. Or if you're like, hey, maybe I, I just want something where I'm going to get just a huge amount of car for my money. It won't be exactly what I want. We call that the steal of the day. You can play with the steals of the day. Same thing. Tinder your way through it. Or if you're somebody who's like the power into it, great. We're going we're gonna to take every car in your market and we're going to rank it. So unlike going to a, a listing site, so first of all, the curation I just described, you don't find on the listing sites because, you know, obviously there are winners and losers in that. And you can only do that if the dealers who are losing aren't your customers, aren't the ones paying you. So the curation is a big difference. The other big difference that you have is, is when you do search yourself, Every car is ranked. We rank them from first best to worst. And then you can filter all that and use all the data that we bring. And so you're always getting a sense of, of that expertise weighing in on every decision, but you're the decision maker. And so there's this sense of you do a lot less work, but you know a lot more in a lot less time than you could Probably. ever on any listing site. Yeah. You're, you're making me want to find a car in Copilot. <laughs> I want to, in, in typical provocative car dealership guy nature, I want to say this very bluntly. Do car dealers hate you? Copilot or me personally? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can focus on Copilot. My, yeah, my, no, our clients, our clients, obviously, when we were serving them, were, loved us because we made them very successful. I would say that anybody who encounters us, 99% of them love us dealer-wise. Why? Because they want right? They won. They had one of the 10 best cars and that consumer swiped right on them. Mm. And so when they say, how'd you find me? I found you through Copilot. Now, once in a while, if there's something, you know, something that's wrong or different, you know, then we got to work that out. That's what, so most dealers who experience us love us because they won. And when, and you know what it's like as a dealer, a consumer comes in feeling confident that they know they want to buy that car. That's a better experience for you as a dealer because they, they, you start on third base because they trust that car. They come in empowered with knowledge. They're not sitting there like afraid of, you know, engaging with you. You got to understand when our customers, before they find us, we did focus groups a couple weeks or interviews a couple weeks ago. I sat in on three of them. They were three women sales executives, VPs or directors run sales teams. And each of them had a story about the last time they bought a car. One of them said, I bought a car I didn't want. I regret it every day. But I just, you know, I didn't know what was going on. They were talking so fast. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, they, and the second one said, I know I didn't get treated right. And the third one, same experience. She had both. I bought a car and I didn't get treated right on the new one. And so there's this sense of lack of trust that the worst experiences of the car business create for people. And I think good dealers pay the price for that. Dealers try to do the right thing, you know, get loyalty from their repeat customers, but new customers come in 
and assume that they must be like somebody who gave them a bad experience. So for those dealers, we're empowering them. Now, listen, if we were doing Super Bowl commercials, there'd be plenty of dealers who would say, well, I don't like that because I don't like the consumer knowing everything. But those dealers, we, know, we don't send somebody to them, so they're never, they're, we never hurt them. They're, they're never, mm-hmm. There's no downside for yeah, them. You have, so yeah, like you mentioned, you have this interesting selection process where, you know, it's the good, the customers or the, the well-priced cars receive those leads. So it's almost as if the only encounter, and I'm generalizing, but almost as if the only encounter dealers have with you is a positive encounter. So I think that's a, exactly. it's an interesting dynamic given the fact that the dealer is not your customer, they're not paying you. And so it does set you up for an interesting dynamic there. Zooming out a little bit, I think, you know, going back to the fact that you mentioned your 2 million visitors per month, which is, you know, an incredible number. Um, I'm really curious to know, being in your seat, are there any trends or any analytics, anything interesting that you're seeing? You guys do put out a lot of data and you've shared some data with me in the past. And so are there any notable trends that you're noticing right now from when it comes to either shopper behavior, buyer behavior, markets, anything on that side? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, and you've you've tweeted and talked a lot about this. I think it's really important. I'd say the first one is is in the continuing trend where the sedan is going away, and the crossover is growing. And the problem with that is that you know this is was happening before the pandemic, but has accelerated. It means on used cars, you've got more sedans than people who want to buy sedans, and less crossovers than people who want to buy crossovers. So that's definitely a part of it. I think the pricing trend, the thing that we put the alarm on, and you were as well, is the market was declining for most of the last year. It peaked for nearly new cars in August. It peaked for other cars kind of end of Q1, older cars end of Q1. And prices were going down month month after month after month. And then February hit and cars started to tread water. Used car prices started to tread water. And then... We got into a situation where prices have been going up almost ever since. They've just, they've been plat, kind of treading water again these last few weeks. But you know, SUVs are up $5,000 in 10, 12 weeks. I mean, that's jarring. And so I do think, you know, you've talked about, I don't think we're going to get back to new, no- I think we'll get to a new normal, not normal, the return to normal that we thought may have happened. Given this spike now and the fact that the, you know, less lease returns in the future in the next few years, there's going to be less cars, used cars available because we made less new cars and we especially lease less new cars over the last couple of years. I think cars are going to cost more. And so I was looking at data last night, you know, prior to the pandemic, 38% of the cars, new cars on dealer lots were listed below $30,000. Today, that's 8% of cars. Wow. Before the pandemic, 52% of used cars and I'm leaving off like the, you know, yeah. deal, the consumer auction cars, but of, of the dealers consumers would typically look at, 52% of cars were under 20,000. Today it's 25%. So I think the other trend is, is that prices are going, have gone up on new cars. Prices have gone up on used cars. And I think some of this inflation is going to get baked into a new normal, which means that buying cars is less accessible than it's been in a long time. And I think this is a big problem. And then you add in interest rates, which make it effectively more expensive to own a car. Big time. I think that's yeah. a real negative for consumers. And for, I think it's bad for the economy. Yeah. And as you know, I tweet about this a lot. You know, I, Clearly, prices are being buoyed by just the lack of supply. The use side, while we have seen a little creep up just a tiny bit now in April, 
um, and likely in May, it's still, it's still where we still are very far on where we should be from a supply perspective and all that is keeping prices inflated. Um, I think supply is going to be the fix here. Interest rates is not helping, like you said, right? The average interest rate on a used car loan right now is close to 14%. Uh, on a new car loan, it's just about to hit 9%. I just tweeted that out. So it's a, it's a crazy environment that's changed so rapidly and it's putting a lot of pressure on consumers. Well, I would add that I think the other problem we have is, is that the, you know, new car supply will put a little softening into the market. I think 31% versus, you know, 82% we're paying over sticker. But the cars are just more expensive. I mean, the average new cars are over $50,000 now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're just more expensive. And, you know, we're, and we're having challenges. I mean, you know, GM is, has another chip shortage going on right now. So, you know, Yukons and Tahoe's are down to like 20-day supply. Um, and so, you know, you look at that and you say, we're not going to have enough used car supply to really get used cars to come back down. And the new cars they're making are just bigger and more expensive. And so I think we've gone through kind of almost a structural sh- upward shift in the cost of owning a car. And then you throw in interest rates. And, you know, I do think it's less accessible than it's been. And I do think it's, it's a, it's, it's going to be a problem. I mean, it's all, my, my belief is our, our data shows that only reason this is happening is because the upper end of the market, the lower end of the market has actually been treading water all, all year. But the upper end of the market, because there's the San Francisco Fed reported last month that there's 500 billion left in excess savings, savings on top of what people would normally have mm-hmm. from the pandemic between lockdowns, not spending money and stimulus money. And that 500 billion is what's keeping the economy, the consumer so strong, but it's, it's creating this paradoxical problem, which is, you know, yeah, consumers can afford to buy cars and we're still selling, they're selling a lot of cars, but we're baking in these high prices in a way that when supply goes down further, I don't think the prices are going to ever bounce back to normal. Mm-hmm. At least with gold normal. Yeah, it's it definitely feels like a structural upshift. And um, especially, well I think the, the the main point being that the average new car, the cost to produce a new car has just gone up and that's just going to trickle down to used cars eventually. So no I, think on a more, I think on a more positive note, I do want to know, you know, what is your, what's the vision for Copilot? Like how does, how does the company and the brand and the product evolve over the next five years? Well, I mean, we've been long playing in the AI space. We've used AI to power some of our data and models. Um, we have, by the time this comes out, we'll have a, we'll have a plugin in the ChatGPT plugin store. Um, I, I think Copilot will be what you described on your show a couple weeks ago, which is with the AI, we will be able to uh, 10x, I think, what our Copilots can do in your pocket. And so ours isn't for everybody. I mean, you know, I think the segmentation of the car market is an important thing to think about. If you always buy a BMW or you always buy a Mercedes and you go to the same dealer for service, you always buy a Lexus, you go to that same dealer for service and you have a good relationship with the salespeople, you, see, you don't need a co-pilot necessarily. Because, But if you're somebody who doesn't know a lot about cars, doesn't have a deep relationship with the dealership, and often has to look your needs evolve as your life evolves, um, you, you either need to want to go become a student of the car world, or you need a partner, you need a co-pilot. And so we want to be that in everybody's pocket. And our view is, is that an empowered consumer actually buys faster, buys with more confidence, 
and we think it creates a healthier car business. And, you know, we're not, because we don't make money off the auto dealer ecosystem, we're happy to have lots of people succeed. We work mm-hmm. with Carfax. We work, we send people to dealer websites. We'd be happy to send people to listing sites. Like our view is, is we're just that partner to help them. And so we don't see it as a zero sum game with us. We see it as we're something that makes the ecosystem move, move more smoothly because an empowered, enlightened consumer won't be reticent to go into that dealer. We always say when we would, we would, we monitor consumer shopping, we'd say it's amazing how long they're circling the airport. And they basically, a lot of them don't want to go in until they have to. They're like, we call it a crash. They run out of fuel <laughs> and they crash land because I just had to go in. Where if they feel confident, they go in sooner when they meet your people. They see your people and say, hey, you're, um, I'm really excited about this car. And here's why. Like a motivated, empowered consumer, well, the, well, there are some dealers who haven't come to accept that yet, is better for their business. It is better. They will buy with more confidence. They will be more loyal because they don't have to feel like when someone's doing the right thing that they have to be protecting against it. They can know who's doing the right thing and trust and build relationships to people doing the right things. And so we feel like we can be that connected blue by the, as a consumer advocate that helps the dealers and others in the ecosystem doing the right thing actually build the relationships with, with consumers that they really want to have but have struggled to uh, build over the last decade or two, except for that core 30% of loyal customers who return all the time. Well stated, my friend. Very well stated. Pat, where can the audience learn more about Copilot and yourself? So we're in the app store. Uh, Copilot is our app name. Uh, Hopefully be in the plugin store by the time this drops. So ChatGPT plugin store as well. Uh, Our website is copilotsearch.com. You can go there. Uh, our Twitter handle is, uh, uh, copilot for car. Our, our account is copilot for car shopping. We're big followers of, of yours. And I'm at, at Pat Ryan Chicago on Twitter as well. I love it. Pat, this was awesome. Thanks for sharing all the gems. Loved hearing the stories from back in the day. And I'm excited to keep, keep an eye on, on what you guys are doing. I think there's some really great things on the horizon here with all this new technology. And I'm pumped about what you're going to build. I think you're on a great track. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I Listen, I, we learn a lot from you and we appreciate all you do for the ecosystem and consumers. It's, it's really fantastic. Thanks, Pat. Thanks. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.